and welcome to another fun, fun episode of Here's a Guy. Um, I'm Alex coming to you from St. Louis, and I'm joined by my usual uh, uh, co-hosts, the first of which my older brother Cody coming to us from Illinois. Cody, how are you? Good, good. It's been uh, a long week already and only getting longer, but uh, very happy to be back here. Excited for these topics tonight. we got a real good lineup, so I'm uh, very, very interested to see how this all goes. Well, you know, we're, what, 70 episodes in? We had to we had to start at some point. So um, mm-hmm. we're also joined by Jack John coming to us from Indianapolis. Jack John, how are things in your world? They're they're falling apart. Last week, I, I talked about how good everything was looking up with uh, the Final Four um, and, and WrestleMania coming up. Uh, since then, FAU lost on a very obviously they were going to lose buzzer beater. Uh, and WrestleMania was kind of shit. And also Vince McMahon is back in the WWE. And also the WWE is owned by the parent company that owns the UFC. So everything is awful, actually. I, I'm going to give you a slight disagreement. I thought <clears throat> WrestleMania, for the most part, yeah. was great. Oh, Saturday. It, amazing. It, it face planted yes. pretty significantly <laughs> yeah. right at the end. And then we found out more news <laughs> that was made it even more of a face plant. Yeah. Yeah. Like, by the, the way. Vince McMahon's mustache. Oh my god! Oh, what is that? Because it ain't my hair. <laughs> I thought that was. It a looks like shirt. he painted <laughs> it on. It it looks like he's trying to like go for like Adam's family meets French Butler meets really shitty costume disguise. Like, it, see, I was thinking like Godfather era mobster was what he was going for with the amount of oil that is in his hair. I mean, he was doing that a decade ago. It's just more prevalent now. Vince McMahon has very, he's known for having very odd cultural tastes. I'm not ruling out that he is just now hearing the song uh, Pencil Thin Mustache by Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> he may have first heard that in the year 2023 and decided that sounded cool. He he retired and discovered Jimmy Buffett. I believe this now to be my canon. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, WrestleMania, I thought it was very fun. I did make it put it on the record decent matches it was i did think the um mysterio family uh domestic violence bull was a little uncalled for as was <laughs> it was a, a also a bit triggering um that they opened up the whole thing with uh you know him being brought in from a uh, prison yeah. <laughs> um I, really I, really a pretty tasteless storyline but i mean by by wwe standards there's been far Far worse. I, I know our, our audience isn't wrestling fans, and that's okay. I will make the note, though, that this giant like family bloodbath feud had the sponsorship of Cinnamon Toast Crunch for the match, including really... a giant man <laughs> in a Cinnamon Toast Crunch outfit in the middle of this heated family rivalry where Rey Mysterio literally whips the shit out of his son in the middle of it. Uh, need I yeah. remind you? I think you Dad, also... we will never understand each other. But do you understand why kids love the great taste of Cinnamon Toast Crunch? <laughs> I, I like when we got to the point, like it was bad enough when it opened up with like, you know, him being let out of prison. And, um, you know, it gets to the point of the match where like his family's ringside and like he shoves his mom. I'm like, this is the promote a fucking cereal. Could they not have picked <laughs> any other match on yeah, this card? Because like, like- that was like by far. The, you know, yeah. the most offensive match yeah. of the and, whole night. And like the next night, the my favorite match of the weekend, you have uh, Gunther versus Sheamus versus Drew McIntyre, which was sponsored by Mike's Harder, which was a match where dudes just beat the shit out of each other. Like perfect, perfect, perfect sponsorship sense. there. Yeah. If you drink Mike's Harder, this is what will happen to you. 
You'll also get in a fight with an Austrian, an Irishman, and a Scot. Yes. I I was going to say, you'll also be beaten by a giant Scotsman with a sword. (laughs) I have drank a Mike's Harder Lemonade once in my entire life. And it was, I think, the week... It was like either the first or second week of summer after I graduated high school. One of my classmates had a big party, and I, I I was able to acquire some of those... And by acquire, I mean, I actually don't remember how, but let's be honest, Cody probably bought it for me. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, like, the same way you got every uh, everything else at that Le- point. Legally, I have to say I don't know where I got them, but Cody, thank you for something unrelated. Yeah. Uh, statute of limitations <laughs> run. Um, but, like, not bad. Gave me the worst fucking heartburn, I think, of my entire life. The amount Any, of as bad as that heartburn shit. is these days, I I struggle to get through a glass of orange juice. <laughs> but yeah, anything with that much yeah. citric acid in it is gonna, especially yeah. mixed with alcohol. If I yeah. tried to drink a screwdriver right now, my <laughs> esophagus would explode out of my chest. See, I can do a screwdriver. It's like everything else, like the wine coolers, they're just so so goddamn sugary. Like I get a hangover actively after drinking two of them. Like I I don't know anyone who willingly drinks those who's above the age of 21 and actually one of the other worst heartburns my entire life was also mike's hard lemonade related the the one of the dumbest drinking things i've ever done which was beer bonging a mike's hard lemonade. oh didn't feel good don't never cannot recommend there's no good payoff people (laughs) don't people barely find it funny i thought i was going to get a bunch of yucks but i really didn't um, people mostly just pitied me, and that's what I deserve. Uh, speaking of getting pity after beer bonging, uh, when I was 19 or 20, I beer bonged a Bud Light Platinum and uh, made a complete ass of myself uh, for the following six hours. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a toughie, man. Um, <laughs> you live and you really learn. <laughs> really a Bud or in Jack Sean's case, you live. Really Hardly. a Bud Light Platinum in... Uh, in any context is, is an invitation for a tough night, but yeah. especially taking, uh-huh. taking it straight to the brain like that. Then again, you are also the man who, what, two days ago drove two hours to buy some Malort. That is true. And can you explain why you did this? Uh, I'm going to a bachelor party next week and I want everyone else to be in pain. Okay. Uh, you're you fucking people and you're Malort. <laughs> so I, I mentioned on the podcast a while ago, I let, uh, Jack's sister Amanda suckered me into taking a shot of Malort at the Wonder Years show, and I still taste it. So it it's mostly I, I don't know why I let you people talk me into this. So um friend of the show, Ruben, it's his brother's bachelor party, and he makes me drink Malort a lot on my Twitch channel, and I don't know if he's ever had any, so I'm mostly bringing it to make him drink it. I was gonna say you he has to. Everyone else is just a, a you, casualty, you unfortunately. See, that that's the, the trade-off, because every time I've ever been in a room with people who are doing shots of Malort, if you were in the room and had never taken a shot of Malort, you were taking a shot of Malort. It didn't matter if you wanted it or not. It or not. Everyone else in the room would bully you until yeah. you did it. Uh, at my first housewarming party, like the first time I had a party at my house, um, I brought everyone to my office to show them what my office looked like. And then I was like, oh, guys, while you're all here, here's six shot glasses and here's a bottle of Malort. You're doing shots with me right now. <laughs> I remember that. Um, Not well, but I remember it. (laughs) Now, on the subject of Chicago, I mean, look, I may have my pride, but I'm not too proud to do this, which is, and this might be the only time I ever say this, and, you know, Mitch, please don't clip this and use (laughs) it against me. 
But there was a mayoral election in Chicago yesterday. And <sighs> pains me to say it, but Chicago, you did a good job. I'm proud of you. God, I want to vomit. <laughs> they, they get one free hag likes you path, but it's void after 24 hours. Yeah, Chicago, it was... I, 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 I'm, I'm I think happy is, with you right now. <laughs> Mitch is going to be ecstatic, first of all, to see Lori Lightfoot out of there. But <laughs> also, I mean, it became so Lori Lightfoot got beat up on in uh, the primaries by uh, an actual progressive. Uh, and the Republicans, as has been their uh, strategy for most things here recently, ran a complete far right whack job who was just an awful person. And he got. Uh, beaten by a pretty solid margin, so always good to see. So uh, you'll love to see it. <laughs> good, good job, Chicago. Um. So what else? What else have we had going on, Cody? If, if you were you were pretty silent on why your week has been so busy, but I noticed on social media you had something pretty interesting going on. So, yeah, uh, those of you that are uh, fans of the show know that one of my many things I do for work is uh, I do some sports casting for local sports. And uh, the high school that Alex and I went to uh, was nice enough. They're organizing a fundraiser for their after prom, and they decided they were going to indulge in the time honored tradition of donkey basketball. Yep. So they very kindly invited me to come uh, call the game over PA and do the MC type stuff. And. I had never witnessed a donkey basketball game before. As most people. Folks, it is it is something to behold. I, I'd heard about it, but I'd never watched one either. I mean, you know, you live in the rural Midwest and you you hear about it. But I no, I'd never been to one before. So so I I understand just because I saw your Facebook post, but I still have a lot of questions. Is it is it like polo where they have to stay on the donkey? Like, can like the donkey just be a point guard? Is this like an air bud thing? Like, tell me, tell me exactly how this ran. So I'm so glad you asked. So first of all, these donkeys, first of all, one thing they don't tell you, they are actually wearing special shoes. Oh, my God. So as not to fuck up the floor. Uh, they still put like tarp and stuff down on the gym floor just because you don't want donkey scuffs on your. But uh, also. So the way that this worked is it's a, a smaller ball that they're playing with. And you can, in order to go get the ball when it's loose, which is most of the time, <laughs> you are allowed to get off your donkey. However, you still have to lead your donkey over to the ball. I feel like if you're getting off to, your donkey. In order to pass the ball, in order to pass the ball or shoot it, you have to be actively on top of your donkey. Okay. And furthermore, these are trained donkeys that they have with very different personalities that are played for laughs. So some of them will buck you off. Some of them, like, you try and drag your... I, this happened a bunch. You try and drag your donkey over to get a loose ball, and he just won't go. Um, we had one that kept throwing one of the guys uh, that everyone got some good kicks out of. Yeah, uh, yeah so that I did not know that they had specially trained donkeys that were just designated to be assholes, but... Uh, yeah, that was, uh, now I don't, I don't know if this is, if this is how it plays, but this is how my mind immediately goes. Can you steal another person's donkey? Like, let's say I got the asshole donkey. Can I just like wait for a loose ball and then just go steal somebody's donkey? You cannot do that. Damn it. Uh, you can trade donkeys with your teammates, but they have to also be okay with it. (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, as far as the... So there were some donkeys that were... Um, yeah, there were some that, like, were very reluctant to move. There are some that would just take off randomly. Uh, like I said, there was one guy that kept getting, like, flung off of his donkey. Um, it was fun for the rest of us, probably not for him, because, like, I mean, it's still wood you're landing yeah. on. Yeah, the guy but... had to go to work the next day. I I hope not. That guy is black and blue today. I can Oof. tell you that for sure. But uh, yeah, it, it was really interesting and uh, the crowd loved it. It was very fun. But uh, yeah, it, it was just it was so completely unique. Um, I never experienced anything quite like it before. I tell you, it was the easiest game or, or sorry, one of the hardest games to call from the standpoint of actually being a sportscaster because 90% of it is just nothing happening and people struggling to, you know, get their donkeys under control. Is it like middle school basketball where it's just fast break after fast break after fast break off rebounds? Pretty much, but fast would be uh, a <laughs> kind of a misnomer here because none of these donkeys move that quickly. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, they didn't always go where the riders wanted them to go. So, you know, a team would have the ball down at their goal for, you know, two minutes. Sometimes <laughs> somebody just waiting for their donkey to be turned the right way that they could get a good shot at the uh, at the hoop. Got to get a shot clock in there, man. Uh, this game would have been nothing but shot clock. Violations. This is this is why Will did so well is because he could just hog the ball, grab rebounds, no shot clock. This game. So they had they had two. Each of these games had two eight-minute halves. The highest-scoring game was six to four at the end. I really was like my middle school basketball team. Yeah, <laughs> yeah much like ours. <laughs> um, yeah. So essentially, you watched a sporting event where a bunch of people try to play. You know, maybe the most nickel major sport atop uh, the donkeys from the classic 1949 Disney animated Legend of Sleepy Hollow, the one that Ichabod Crane... Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, that, that actually it reminded me a lot of that. So another cool thing is, uh, so the guy that they brought it, so it's this company that comes in and does it. Like, you, okay. you contact them, they will set up a donkey basketball game, and they send one of their reps out who, you know, he handles all the donkeys, he takes care of all that, he, you know, tells you what you need to do, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And he's also out there with a microphone because they don't all have stuff like this. So sometimes he has to do what I do while he's helping people wrangle their donkeys. <laughs> um, so I like to think I made his night a lot easier. He certainly seemed appreciative. But um, what a guy. he we was telling. Guy yeah. How do I get his job? Dude, I bet CJ would do it. Shout out CJ from the uh, donkey basketball company. He's a he's a dude. Um, but he uh, was telling uh, some people beforehand like this company gives you a list of like names you can use for the donkeys. They're all very comical, but the donkeys actually have names and some of them are better than the, like there was one named Seamus. Um, I would love to write a donkey named Seamus. Great. Donkey. Uh, my favorite was the, there was a small donkey that they had trained to be kind of an asshole. Uh, his name is Mr. Belvedere. <laughs> <laughs> Those are good donkey names. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So did it, did it raise a lot of money? Did it seem like was it did. the attendance was very good. And these tickets that they were selling were not cheap. I can tell you that. So 
Yeah, the attendance was good, and uh, like I said, the after prom looks like it's going off uh, at least well funded. I can't say without a hitch till it happens, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But uh... have, have I talked about after prom on here before? I don't remember if I have or not. I don't think we've discussed that. Is that so, Jack John? Is this, is this a concept that was familiar to you? Because this is one of those things we just grew up around. And I tell it to people from other places, and it's strange to them. Uh, yeah, we had an after prom. Um, I, I think my high school had it. I was dating a girl at another high school that was local here, and I remember going to her after prom. Uh, but my high school also, after every football game, we had a thing called the fifth quarter, uh, which is where a local church would just let us like wreak havoc in like their rec center, basically. So I assume very similar yeah, vibes. Yeah, we had something similar school? too yeah. for a while. Yeah, Our town had um, that it wasn't it was fifth called. quarter. I think it was after. Yeah, it was after basketball games. I think it was like after buzzer or something like that. Yeah, I mean something that, that yeah. I'd, I'd sooner uh, pass away than go to. But you know, it was yeah, there. something I never went to ever. Uh, I just, me and my friends were busy doing actual fun stuff. Kids are sp- not spending enough time in church in our hometown. I mean, get a couple, squeeze a couple more hours out of that. I, I think a thousand people with like eight churches in it. Yeah, yeah, that's not a not a thing at all. I, otherwise, otherwise, Cody, people who live in Greenfield might uh, drink. Yeah, I was going to say, I oh, do. We can't have wow. that. <laughs> High school kids from Greenfield drinking out in a field somewhere. The yeah. concept is totally alien to me. I uh, I didn't drink in high school, but I do remember going to fifth quarter and playing Guitar Hero and filling up a girl afterwards. So it was entirely uh, oh, probably yeah, what they probably, had in mind. There was probably a lot of uncomfortable reaching second base at those yeah. events. I can only I can only a lot of lot of lot of the over the pants HJs there. Oh. <laughs> People, what who, would Jesus do? That. Apparently, this. <laughs> People who glamorize teenage years are really insane <laughs> to me because you forget you remember all the high points and you remember like the no responsibilities you forget like that part of it yeah uh-huh. so, um so how jack the the after prom that you went to do you remember how it worked it, we went to like this not quite like a dave and busters but like kind of like a like entertainment park where there was like basketball courts and like, I think laser tag or some shit. And just like, just kind of just like led a bunch of teenagers who were like in tuxes and dresses, just like go. Uh, and it was like from like 10 to like 1 AM. Like, uh-huh. and it was, I just remember it being kind of fun, but the person I was with didn't make it fun. So we left after like an hour, but I, in concept, I think it was fun. So See, Jack, that's that's how it differs from our experiences. Well, yeah. You were allowed well, to leave. Yeah. Well, there's actually a few differences. And Jack, you've heard us talk about our hometown quite a bit. Yes. Over the years. Would it surprise you to hear that our version of it was far more deranged than that? Was it one of those lock in ones where you're just stuck there? That's part of the problem. Oh, so fuck here, no. Here, here's and Cody, you, you you were saying that it works a little bit differently now. But back in our day, here's how it worked. First of all, if you go to prom, you must go to after prom. Oh, fuck that. You it must. was mandatory. Yeah, mandatory. And they breathalyze you when you get there to make sure that you are not drinking. So you get there. So here's the thing. Like you said, the idea of an after prom is like to keep to keep us all from going out and getting shit faced. Yeah. Um, but they don't want like a riot. So they, they want us to do something entertaining. Yeah. You know, entertain ourselves. 
So you said like you went to like some entertainment center, you know, certain places. There's probably like, you know, bowling alleys or laser tag yeah. and shit. Well, here's the thing is our town has nothing. Um, <laughs> so there's nowhere else for us to go. I mean, so like where else we could go is basically another like the church gym instead of the high school gym, you know? Yeah. So. What we, instead we did was they would rent out a place up in Jacksonville um, where we went to college. And if you didn't know, Jacksonville is like, what, 25, 30 minutes away from from our home. 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. So you ha- you basically they gave you like an hour and change to get up there. That was that part was never a problem. In fact, you usually had a time to go, you know, run to Walmart and dick around in your in your, you know, tuxes and dresses beforehand. That was probably the most fun part yeah. of the night. I, I should do when you're 17, 18. One time yeah. I. um. Just to fuck around since we couldn't drink, I drank. Oh, God, these are so heinous and such a product of the time. This is such a 2011 fucking thing to exist. But you remember that Monster had the Arnold Palmers? Oh, yeah. yeah. Those are pretty heinous. I, I never had a good time with those. I, I thought you were going to go with the whitest kids, you know, uh, route. And uh, what about mouthwash? <laughs> that that was, still that shows up on breathalyzer, Jack. Yeah, that, uh. that would trip me up, but... One time, there was one time at, a, at an actual party, I mixed, I was just hodgepodging, so I tried mixing one of those with vodka. Oh. Fuck, I, that was, that was, I had a bad night. But this, yeah. since I couldn't drink, I decided to hammer one of those and do a five-hour energy. Um, <laughs> and I got, like, extremely sick. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, that sounds like something that uh, I used to do. Uh, I did this for two years in college, come finals, is... Uh, yeah. I what the hell did I call these? I think uh, I just called them a bombs, uh, <laughs> but I would uh, get a monster, pour it into a cup and then uh, take the top off a five hour energy drink and drop it in like it was a like it was an Irish car bomb and then chug the whole thing. If uh, I needed to be up for a little while in the middle of the night, you're, you're like, because that'll fucking wake you up. All right. So the core concept of like getting drunk and that feeling is like. You get kind of dizzy, you get kind of lightheaded. What if I just had a caffeine rush so bad I felt those things? I mean, the the fact is, at this point, I was probably like it had been fully a day since I had had any sleep. So, like, this was maintenance <laughs> at that point. Yeah. So you, we get to the place in Jacksonville. They breathalyze you and you go in and they have they have a ton of activities. They They have a ton of shit set up because here's the thing. Here's one of the other differences you said. You said that, you know, you left early. So that's one difference is that you're allowed to leave. We're not allowed to leave. And you said it lasts until like, what, 1 a.m.? I think so. It was one of those ones where I was like, damn, this is kind of going late. Um, well, past midnight, I know. Here's the thing. Ours goes all goddamn night until the sun comes up the oh. next day. Oh. You get don't get to leave until like 6 a.m. So. Oh, and here's the fun part. I don't know if this was true for you guys, but when I was a junior and senior, they also, you were not allowed to sleep no, either. What no, the fuck? They wouldn't Same. let you sleep. So, so there was no room where you could go nap. You had to stay awake and do activities all night. What the so fuck? they're performing a fucking sleep deprivation experiment on us. <laughs> By the end, literally, the last thing that happens is as the sun is coming up, they sit us all on the bleachers and they 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 they, they pull the results for the raffles. So everyone is fucking dead we're sitting there watching everybody just get prizes and then we drive home yeah, 30 no, minutes yeah <laughs> no like sleep deprivation is like so much worse than like being drunk or buzzed like 
by nature, none of us have slept in like 24 hours <laughs> and they make us drive 30 minutes home because to them, that is better than us going out and drinking and having premarital sex, which guess what? We did the other 364 days of the year anyway. <laughs> oh, and by the way, they also would not let you bring in energy drinks. I found That's that <laughs> the hard way my senior year. I, the, one of my classmates, moms, who was a tremendous bitch, um, <laughs> she was, uh, yeah, she read me the riot act uh, for bringing in a monster. And I was like, Okay, this has not been opened. Do you think I took a syringe and shot a bunch of vodka in here? Maybe. Now that you said like, that, I'm kind of thinking. Or do you, or do you, or is the monster itself your objection? Because let me remind you once again, <laughs> you are requiring that I stay up all night and then drive home half an hour. What could your objection to caffeine possibly be in that context? Are you a goddamn Mormon now? Wouldn't surprise me. Like this whole thing, just what the fuck? And and so like a lot a lot of the events they would come up with were pretty fun. I will give them that. The problem is like we're forced to stay awake. Yeah, like my, my favorite yeah. was we did we did Fear Factor. Oh, and I signed up. Yeah, for that. we did I, that too. I was like, I was the guy in the class, so I would I would do like weird jackass shit for fun, you know. And I forget to sign up in time, and so who I'm left with. Is this poor girl from my class who was who was a total sweetheart but had an extremely weak stomach? So we were like opposite pairs, and what you have to eat is randomly drawn. And what so what I get is like a, one of those big, huge, fat olives. Not hard to eat, but I don't like olives. It is a little bit of a challenge for me, but like not really. I just choke that thing down. So I'm like, okay, I probably got the easiest thing here. I just, I really hope my partner doesn't get something extremely gross. Are either of you familiar with Braunschweiger? Like, yeah, the extremely like rancid German tinned meat. Mm -hmm. That's what yeah. she got. It's like worse than dog food. And she gets that. And she makes it in one bite before she starts throwing up. Oh, I was no. fucking livid. Yeah. I'm like, are you shit? We can't switch. <laughs> like, she'll yeah. she'll take the olive. I'll eat this horse shit. What what else do I have to do all night? Does know? does starting to projectile That'll vomit me allow you to go home early? Because I would I would totally no. like Ted Nugent no. myself for that. Nothing allowed you to go home early. God damn That's it. That's the point. They perform the goddamn instead of allowing us to go out and party. <laughs> their better idea was having us drive 30 minutes to do the fucking Stanford prison experiment on us. <laughs> That's what we did. It after was. Prom. Yeah, it was crazy. I, I remember my senior year, uh, they had a blackjack table, actually, Ooh. which oh, yeah. I thought was kind of weird, given the overall churchiness of the situation <laughs> as a whole. Uh, and after me and a couple of my classmates who that's where I spent a good chunk of the night because me and a classmate or two, uh, convince them to let us uh, play poker for a little while. And of course, these are just for chips. There's, you know, no money attached to it. So I actually had a, a fair amount of fun doing that. But uh, a lot of the other stuff they had, Alex, I think they had upped their game a little bit by the time you got there, because when I, they enough. did have the fear factor when I was there, which I did not sign up for. I preferred to watch because that was funnier for me. Uh, but yeah, so there there wasn't a whole lot of real interesting other shit to do. I do remember after we left, so I went, uh, me and my date and uh, 
another two people, uh, another one of our friends or another couple of our friends. Um, we went and then on like leaving town, we're like, OK, so we're going to stop at Steak and Shake and uh, get something to eat because we had barely eaten all night anyway. Uh, and I drank like because I was driving, I drank like eight cups of coffee. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's just one of that's one of many things that was just kind of par for the course growing up where we did. And like I get to adulthood, I'm like, how is how did nobody seriously object to this? This is the craziest shit. Um, yeah, like I just thought everybody. I, it really. Yeah. I mean, are teenagers driving around drunk really better off than um, teenagers driving around extremely sleep deprived uh, for for much greater distances? Like, it's a real monkey's paw situation. Yeah. You're you're basically trying to find out which of these two things is more yeah. dangerous. And you're not just sleep deprived. It also sounds like you've been doing shit for 16 straight hours. Oh, you're yeah. fucking yeah. exhausted. You're, you're gassed. Yeah. I mean, you are done. I slept, I think, until five o'clock that night. Oh, I yeah. got home at oh, like yeah. eight, eight thirty in the morning. I think I passed out and I, I don't think I I don't know if I saw the sun again that day. <laughs> uh, so my junior no, my yeah, my junior prom, I think the the day before I'd gotten up early to go turkey hunting and went and shot a turkey. And then my senior year, the day before prom, my friends and I did our senior skip day and we got hammered then. So we <laughs> were already a little bit hungover before all this, too. So oh it's just really so added. They to the actually whole. they actually let you do a senior skip day, huh? No, let. No. let yeah, we, we just did. <laughs> OK. No, okay. we did have we did yeah, have class, we did get a I bunch mean, of our we did get a bunch of our parents, including to to her credit, our mom, to uh, run cover for us because they started calling around like like we had a bunch of our parents call in sick. Our mom was one that agreed to do it. One of our friends, we started off the day by going and getting a huge breakfast at a, a restaurant in the the village, um, just to the south of our hometown. And our friends oh, yeah. owned that place, and like apparently some the principal had heard that we were all there. Like someone had said, like, we're all there, um, like getting breakfast. We were about done. And the principal calls and says, uh, yeah, we heard that, um, a bunch of the supposedly boys who are sick, um, <laughs> are eating breakfast at your place. And she's like, Nope, just hangs up. So we had good support. Um, see, yeah. First of all, I, I, I honestly can't believe mom let you do that. I don't think she would have for my friends, but, uh, so our senior year, apparently they were very concerned about this because I remember they told our class, if you do not show up, you will be suspended, each and every one of you. And that means that you have to take all of your finals, no matter how good your grades are. And that's going on your record. So they really brought the yeah. hammer down, but apparently they lo loosened up a little bit. They they threatened they just, my yeah, class they just... that they couldn't walk. They were like, if you do this, if you're absent today of all days, uh, we're going to withhold your diploma. Yeah, we we like we were sneaky about it. And also, in fairness, it was only some of us that did it. <laughs> like most of our class was still there. It was like 10 of us who did this. Um, and what that's we did, still we a third of your like, class. Though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Um, and it was all the like it was everybody they should have expected was going to do it. Um, but we started off by going and getting a huge breakfast. Then we went to our friend's house uh, who had all the good parties. We watched. uh we debuted the movie we had just made, the feature-length movie we'd made. Um, and then we spent a lot the rest of the day outside 
uh, drinking, doing shots, and like listening to metalcore, um, which <laughs> took a definite south turn when we got drunk enough and like a muir came on and everyone started moshing each other. And one of our friends <laughs> separated his shoulder. Oh it's just, it was, it was, yeah, dark day. But anyway, <laughs> um, before we get to our guys, uh, wanted to touch base on one final thing. March Hagness has reached its final four. Um, and what a group this is. We wanted to acknowledge because, you know, assuming this comes out as planned uh, later this morning, keep an eye out for the poll for our semifinals. Um, the winner of the athletes region, our Cinderella story, the nine seed Imo Koivinen, who has treated <laughs> this tournament much like his methed out journey through the Siberian wilderness. Look, he treks on in, in a true like drug filled shootout. Yeah. He he defeated Doc Ellis. You can't get beat if you can't get caught. Yeah. But he runs into his biggest challenge yet as he faces off with the winner of the villains region, none other than our boy Giuseppe. <laughs> um you know, I, I was very excited to see Giuseppe and Titus out. Oates duke it out because I yes. thought he might have some competition there, but Giuseppe still yeah. he keeps going. Um, so next, on the other side of things, the winner of our history region was Diogenes, who may be the first guy. Um, he advanced and he faces off with the one seed and winner of the wildcard region, the Wizard of New Zealand, who barely escaped this region on a couple levels came down to uh, a coin flip with him and Corporal Wojtek. And I, let me just say, when I did that coin flip <laughs> to the side and I saw it came up heads for the Wizard of New Zealand, eliminating Corporal Wojtek, it, it's like the, the meme, like crying, holding up the gun. Like, I didn't <laughs> want to do it, but I, but I had to. And only beat Franz Reichelt by one vote. So Ooh. he is battle-tested at this point, but he goes up against Diogenes. So keep an eye out for the, the polls for that later this morning. And hopefully I gotta on tell you, Friday, we'll we'll do the 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 finals. I'm proud of my boy Franz Reichel. Yeah, he came in as an 11 seed, and boy, he made it a while, which oh, yeah. I think speaks to, um, you know, I I'm pretty proud of how I built that segment, and I think uh, <laughs> I'm being validated a little yeah. bit here. Apparently, yeah. people remembered it. Um, yeah, one of your other topics, Elena Mazanic had a, had a great run as well, making it yeah. to the Olympic. Um. Unfortunately, she ran into Diogenes and uh, got <laughs> slaughtered, but she'd done a great job before that. How, how many times in history has the phrase, unfortunately, they ran into Diogenes happened? <laughs> More on him. Like, I, I have a mention of him in my yeah, You, you so. translate that into ancient Greek. I bet it happened constantly. <laughs> there, yeah, there's no fortunately running into Diogenes. I just, I, just, I just had some errands to do, and unfortunately, I ran into Diogenes. <laughs> it is unfortunate to run into Diogenes, yeah. And then he started jerking off. Was, <laughs> um, all right. Well, keep an eye out for that, everybody. Um, but speaking of guys, we got to get to our guys. Um, so, Jack John, could you help me out, please? Yeah, I think I remember it. It's uh, the guys. All right. <clears throat> so I'm actually up first this week. And I'm covering someone who has been on my list basically since I started the list. Um, and also say this week, I believe... Um, we have another geographical first as we head to the Canadian territory of Nova Scotia. Ooh. Um, in particular, we head to the village of Sandy Cove, a small, quiet fishing village on St. Mary's Bay. 
It's a tight-knit community even now, uh, but was even more so in 1863. I'm getting the vibe this is a place where a lot of wool sweaters are worn. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of wool sweaters, a lot of a lot of very good cups of coffee being drunk oh, on yeah. porches in, in very cold weather in that, that place. It's, it's a cold place with beautiful beaches. Yeah. That's the kind of thing yeah. that, that happens yeah. there, yeah. Most coffee cups have that splash of whiskey that really wakes up the morning. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, think, yeah, like, think um, Maine, but way less lame. <laughs> so, uh, it was on September 8th of that year, 1863, um, when the rather unusual arrival of a rather unusual man changed the history of Sandy Cove forever. The exact details of his arrival, as well as many other details of his life, are shrouded in rumor. Some say that a foreign ship, never seen before or since, was spotted docked for several hours off the Bay of Sandy Cove with nobody entering or exiting. The Albrights were a family that lived near a beach in Sandy Cove, and one of them, although it's disputed whether it was eight-year-old Collie or his dad Martin, spotted something out of their window on the beach that looked kind of like a seal, which wouldn't be an unusual sight in Nova Scotia, but something seemed off about it. So... Whichever Albright had it had down a lot of scars on its face, and it kept singing "Kiss from a Rose." <laughs> so, whichever Albright headed down to the beach to investigate, um, finding not a seal, but something far more shocking: a young man, possibly in his late teens, dressed in nice clothing, with only a bottle of water and a piece of bread on him, no identifying markings whatsoever. Most surprising of all was that the young man's legs had been recently amputated at the knees. Although the wounds were recent enough that they were still healing and bandaged, this clearly wasn't a result of an accident or some crudely committed crime. This amputation had been surgically performed by someone who knew what they were doing. In a rather grim sight, the man had crawled across the beach to just a few feet away from the water. Suffering from cold and exposure, it seemed that he was resigning himself to his fate. Mr. Albright came up to him and asked for his name. The man, he had no real ability to communicate, merely grunting something that sounded like Jerome. You know, when this, I... This is where we get the story of Jerome of Sandy Cove. When I see somebody on the verge of death's door crawling into the ocean to die, I often think, what's his name? <laughs> yeah, My know. name is get me some goddamn worn <laughs> clothes and some food, you asshole. Most often, the response you get is, uh, who gives a fuck? (laughs) Get me out of here. (laughs) So his name's Jerome is what they're going with here? He he muttered something that sounded kind of like Jerome, and so that's what they're going with. Um, So this is not the origin of that old fifth grade joke, what do you call a man with no uh, arms and no legs floating in the ocean? Bob? Yeah. Yeah, it's also not the... uh, Actually, you know what? There's another one of those, and I don't entirely feel comfortable saying it, so I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the nicest one. A lot of the ones I heard as a kid are just mean as shit. Yeah. His name's not Bob. His name's not Matt. It's <laughs> no. Jerome. Actually, that's not even his actual name, but that's what we went by. Um, Maybe it was, though. I mean, there's got to be true. some slim chance that that happened. That is true, but more on that later. Mr. Albright rescued the man and brought him to his home, where the family nursed him back to health. As he healed, many people from the small community came by to see him and attempt to communicate. People tried speaking with him in French, Italian, Spanish, even Latin, since his appearance was rather Mediterranean. They were just trying anything, 
Again, he refused all conversation. Whether he didn't speak any of these language, languages or didn't want to or was just completely mute, that part was unclear. His only communication was that when he didn't want the attention of the onlookers, he would growl at them like a dog. Not a bad way to go. I also yeah. do that to people sometimes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's a good bit. The Albrights dubbed him Jerome, since that was the closest he had given to a real name. It was also reported that his hands were too soft to be any sort of manual labor. I mean, I will say, in fairness, he was very young, so, um, you know, that's, I guess, the level of detective work going on in <laughs> Sandy Cove, Nova Scotia. What What's the time frame again on this? 1863. I mean, child labor is very much a possibility still. Maybe he just, like, you know, puts lotion on his hands. Yeah. Maybe he was forced into bookkeeping as a child. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Jerome may have been initially unhappy with the swelling of attention from the community, but thankfully for him, the people of Sandy Cove, although nosy, were kind. The Albrights allowed Jerome to live with them, he accepted their generosity, but he never began speaking or gave any other clues about where he came from. Yeah, that is the most Canadian way to describe <laughs> these towns, people I can possibly think of. They're very nosy, but they're very nice. Yeah. yeah. There is another place nearby in Canada that I'm going to lambast later, but yeah. based on what happens in this story, I have nothing but nice, nice things to say about the people yeah. of Nova Scotia. These people are politely inquisitive. Mm-hmm. Jerome had some capabilities of his own. Um, he could feed himself and do other basic tasks of taking care of himself, although he obviously couldn't work. His gruff exterior softened a bit while living with the Albrights. Um, he displayed a kindness for the Albright children, especially their 10-year-old daughter, who considered Jerome to be her friend and treated him as such. Although Jerome was quite moody, as someone in this situation obviously <laughs> would tend to be. I know I would be. Um, mm -hmm. It was said that when the girl entered the room to visit with him, his mood would noticeably improve. Unfortunately, the Albrights were just working class family and they struggled to support another family member. So Jerome wound up getting kind of passed around from home within Sandy Cove to other home within Sandy Cove. Um, just whoever could take care of him at that time. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to stand on your own two feet when you no longer have your own two feet, especially in the right. 1860s. Yeah, you, you, you fail to have a leg up on uh, everyone else. Now, look. We, I'm going to give you two just a, a couple more of those. but <laughs> You're going to put your look, foot down my, soon. Mine was poetic. That was just mean. Yeah. I'm look, not taking the blame for this one. We, we have nothing but respect and empathy for our disabled comrades, okay? We should we should establish that before we, we go through the rest yes. of the segment. Yes. Because it's gonna be very hard to riff on this without you know. <laughs> so eventually, and you know, like the people of, of Sandy Cove were very kind, but at the end of the day, it's a kind of backwards um uh, uh Canadian rural Canadian village. And what they decided was that, you know, we all think Jerome looks kind of Mediterranean. He must be Catholic. And our village is mainly Baptist, but there's a French-Canadian village nearby called Metagon. Most people there are Catholic. He'll probably do better there. Why they thought that is just... Again, the, these, these people are kind, I get the sense, not the smartest. Mm -hmm. um, it's like... It seems like that should be offensive, but yeah. I don't know if it really is. Yeah, They're just like... Well, you know, this guy. I mean, most of that part of Europe is at Catholic, that point yeah. was, but I mean, yeah. 
He could have, I mean, depending on where he came from, he could have been Greek or Turkish yeah. and, you know, Greek Orthodox or something like that. I, I'm just imagining like a, like a, a nice family just being like, what's up with that guy? I don't know. I think he's Italian. <laughs> or like why they thought that this, you know, legless, abandoned, <laughs> mute man, a fuck. Yeah. What the main church in town <laughs> he, was. He he showed up on a beach. He was probably sunburned. That was probably why he had like, such a tan complexion. He was sent to live with a man named Jean Nicola, which, yes, that is a very good French name. Mm. Um, oh. He hailed originally from the French island of Corsica. Um, Jean was immersed in the culture of the region and spoke several languages. The hope was that Jean would finally be able to get Jerome to talk. Um, again, though, Jerome maintained his silence. But his situation did become more stable. Um, this was because the government of Nova Scotia had been alerted to Jerome's situation and had voted to provide him a special weekly stipend. Which is nice, but like always kind of a kick in the nads to see a government like, you know, do stuff like that for people since it's so goddamn hard for that here, apparently. Mm -hmm. um, but well, again, again, Canadians are a little out in front of us on that kind of yeah. thing. I'm I'm sure there's horrible things about Nova Scotia, but they come out looking better than like any place that's ever been covered on yeah. on Here's a Guy. And, and you can't even do the fake Canadian accent at them because apparently they have a completely different accent there that I don't know how to do. I learned that from Letterkenny. But uh, do you want to hear my yeah, impression it's... of somebody from Nova Scotia? <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Let's hear it. Uh, hi, my name is Jack. I'm uh, I'm from Nova Scotia, and uh, I I really love my community. It's uh it's a nice uh about to do town, and uh, we we love our neighbors. That's terrible. Huh? Terrible. So, yeah, it's not funny when you do it either. Huh? I was wondering <laughs> about that. I was wondering if it was may maybe going to get better when some, but no, no, it just it so, it just sits there. Last month, I, I I went on a work retreat, uh, and it was in Branson. And we wound up, all of us, at this kind of yeehaw bar that had what was advertised as an open mic night, and we didn't know what that meant. It wound up being, like, local musicians, but, like, if they were doing, like, comedy, I seriously <laughs> contemplated saying, I do impressions, let me get up there, <laughs> and taking requests from the audience <laughs> and just doing that for all of them and seeing how long it lasted. Someday I may attempt this at a bar, but the, the chance passed me by, unfortunately. Depends on how how okay you are with getting beaten up after yeah. that. We, we were at serious the crowd risk may anyway. turn on you. Yeah. We were at serious risk anyway because the first musician opened by playing the national anthem. Oh, God. Like, we were in the back of the room, but they probably noticed that none of us stood up. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, there's a threshold for how many of those you can get through before getting hit in the face with a Coors Light bottle. <laughs> So where are y'all from? Uh, we're a multiracial group of public defenders. <laughs> we're going to do well here. <laughs> anyway. It'd be like that uh, country bar in Blues Brothers where they got to have you up behind chicken wire to avoid all the uh, <laughs> bottles being chucked at you. Um, so Jerome, he lived with the Nicola family for seven years and became a beloved member of their household. But still, nothing compelled him to speak. Eventually, Jerome's wife sadly passed away, or uh, Jean's wife sadly passed away, and Jean moved back. I was going to gonna say you, you missed something. <laughs> yeah, yeah bury the lead. Uh, it's it, his wife who is like has the exact same health condition. <laughs> she also has no legs and also doesn't speak. 
Um, and she also says her name is Jerome. Um, <laughs> uh, after Jean moves back to Europe, Jerome was sent to live with uh, the Camot family in the nearby town of St. Alphonse de Clare. And I'm just guessing, but that sounds like another French town. Can we agree on this? I'm I'm thinking so, yeah. I'll give you that, yeah. The way I would describe the Camos, and to add to that, Camo is spelled C-O-M-E-A-U. So there you go. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. The way I would describe That is these, Ontario, if I've ever heard it. The way I would describe these folks is that they are almost villains in this story. <laughs> almost. So apparently these Nova Scotians have some American blood in them. Because people all across the region, they'd heard of Jerome by now. So the Camos decide they may as well get a little something-something out of this. Uh. And so they began charging admission for people to come by and lay eyes on the local celebrity. All right. A couple things. One, I think this is, like, just morally speaking, (laughs) a a dickish thing to do under any circumstances. You know, charging money to come look at a human being, let alone someone with a disability, you know? Yeah, this is really the same thing as that guy who put the uh, pygmy in the zoo. (laughs) I think it's slightly less malicious, but in the same ballpark, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, in terms of, like, Maybe not in terms of intention, but in terms of what you are actually doing, you have just made his home the zoo. That's really the only difference. In fairness, first of all, the the money wasn't kept entirely selfishly. He was a member of their household, and they treated him as such. So some of it was used to care for Jerome, and by all accounts, the Camos took good care of him. Second, by this point, Jerome had apparently just gotten used to everyone finding him so fascinating, and so he didn't seem to mind by this point. Which, like, uh, like you know, I guess you do probably get used to it, because I, yeah. I, I just wonder what Jerome's thought press is like. What what could possibly be so interesting about me that everybody wants to come see me? I, I, got, I got sad for a moment, because I imagined him as, like, an animal in captivity at that point. He's just like, yeah, it's my fucking life now. So... Yeah. And and here's the thing, uh, and this, I think, speaks to how bored people were back then. That's true. But I mean, yeah, he's got no legs, and yeah, he doesn't really talk. Is that the kind of thing that is interesting enough to pay money to see? I mean, I've talked... I don't think so myself. I mean... I've seen guys with no legs before. I've also seen <laughs> guys that don't talk. I don't think putting those two things together in the same body is really makes it that much more interesting. I mean, we've we've talked about it on the show. People used to go to train wrecks just because it was something to fucking do on Saturdays. Like, so I, I get it. I think we're breaking some here's guy ground here again, because I think this is the first weird attraction that we have said we wouldn't go to. Yeah, I'm we, not. Let's yeah. See, we've agreed. We've agreed. We would go watch the train wreck thing. Yeah, we would go see old rip the horned toad. Yeah, we would. We would go. Um. Fuck, I'm going to the uh, euthanasia we, coaster. Like, there's there's a limit, and somehow this is it for me. We would go look at the fake Bigfoot that that went around had it come to our yeah. town. But like, now that's oh, I'd go it, watch Johnny Heck perform. <laughs> now, is it? This is just a consideration. You know, the answer can be yes or no. Is it more insulting if you don't go see him though? Because then you start to wonder, like, wait, like, am I really not that interesting after all? Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess if I, that would, I think, be the ultimate slap in the face is if they tried to make this guy a sideshow and nobody showed up. <laughs> is it ableist to not see it? 
He's, See, uh, yeah, unless unless you deliver a very kind letter that says we don't feel comfortable <laughs> paying money to see you because you're a human being. Yeah. Here's five bucks anyway. Yeah, I, I think you got to do something along those yeah. lines. It, it's one of those charity drives where they send you a penny and you send a penny back and a dollar. Like, I'm just going to send you some money so I don't have to go. Just start him a Patreon. Everybody. Who would, um, who would yeah. pay money to see something that mundane? I don't know. Um, yeah, who who would pay money to see uh, just some guy being a guy? And, <laughs> you know, other people for no real apparent reason thinking that's entertaining. <laughs> what kind of fool you'd have to be to do that? Jerome, so, okay, we know that Jerome didn't mind by this point because he no longer growled at people all the time. That's how we know. Diogenes would be very disappointed Mm. in him. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Jerome, he he lived with the Camos until his death in 1912. So all in all, he lived under the care of various Nova Scotians for almost 50 years. In all that time, he never began speaking and never revealed who he was or where he came from. There are rumors that every so often there would be clues about his origin. One is that reportedly he would become extremely angry at the mention of pirates or pirate ships. Two, some say he once let slip that he was originally um, from Trieste, which is a city in in, uh, Italy. How would he let that slip if he (laughs) never spoke? So... I don't know whether that rumor operates under the theory that he chose not to speak and just accidentally forgot he was doing a bit, or um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I'm sure would that be. Some say that he once divulged that the ship he arrived on was called the Columbo. Perhaps the wildest story was that in his later years, he was visited by two obviously wealthy women. They said their names was Mahoney, and they knew Jerome from Mobile, Alabama, before he ran away from home. And we'll say inbreeding might explain some of this, so, you know, Mm -hmm. they have my attention. It's said that the women spoke privately with Jerome for a long time in an unknown language before leaving behind a blank envelope. Uh, The unknown language being the South. (laughs) Yeah. When Jerome saw the envelope, he became very angry. Ripped it, ripped it up into little pieces and threw it in the fire. Now, I will just say that particular story sounds like <laughs> bullshit. I mean, like everything <laughs> about it is just too, it's too good. It's too much like, like a, yeah. a, a, a story, but who knows? I mean, the whole situation is just strange in and of itself. So it, it's hard to rule anything out. Over the years, there's been a ton of speculation about Jerome's origin. Even after his death, people in Nova Scotia never stopped being fascinated by his story. As for his lack of speech, it's been suggested that he may have suffered a traumatic injury to the part of his brain that regulates speech. That does seem likely to be true, either that or like some underlying neurological condition that rendered him mute. Back then, they had less of an understanding of that kind of thing. I don't suppose he could, because it seems like it would have come up. But Jerome can't write, correct? I don't think so, no. Uh, never, yeah, because otherwise he could have told them a lot right. more about his origin if he had right. chosen he, to. He never so, wrote anybody any notes he, or anything like that. I was going to say, as the neurological neurological condition, I don't, I don't know that there is one that would do both of those. 
that would make you completely incapable or I guess. Yeah. Like the traumatic brain injury that would fuck with your like ability to comprehend speech of any, any sort. Right. Right. There's a specific part of your brain that, that does all the functioning for like allowing you to understand language and be able to communicate. If he, if he suffered an Mm -hmm. injury to that part of his brain, that might've, might've affected both of those things. Yeah. I'm, I'm one head trauma short likely to me. I'm one head trauma short of one of those, but probably not both. See, I don't think that both could happen. (laughs) As for who he was, um, the rumors of the strange ship and the irritation at the mention of pirates led some to think that he was a a sailor or some other man of the sea who attempted a mutiny on his ship and was cruelly punished by amputating his legs and dumping him on a random beach. However, the, the I don't nice think that, pirates surgically amputated people's legs. I think well, they just hucked it, you in the deep. It wouldn't necessarily have to be a pirate. He could have been like a sailor and they'd been attacked by pirates or something like that and just had. Problems. OK, but the nice clothing, the soft hands and the surgical quality of the amputation would seem to contradict that theory. Those facts, along with the rumored visit from the mysterious women, have led some to believe that Jerome came from nobility. And either because of his disabilities or jealousy over a potential inheritance, he was exiled and left for dead. But then, if that was true, one would think it would would have been a lot more possible to trace his origin over time. Because we still don't have an exact idea. Well, and yeah, because back then, those were the kinds of people who actually had records. Mm-hmm. We, we've talked about how poor record keeping was back then, but if you were nobility... They they kept a ledger full of all that shit because they were very hawkish about making sure the inheritance got passed down just right. In 2008, local historian Fraser Mooney published a book called Jerome, Solving the Mystery of Nova Scotia's Silent Castaway. A salad this, and scrambled eggs. <laughs> in this book, uh, Mooney proposes a new origin theory based on documents from the time. Mooney argues that a mostly mute young European, likely Italian stowaway turned up in New Brunswick across the bay from Nova Scotia. At first, he worked for a local lumber company in Chipman, New Brunswick. Then one night while working late and by himself, he fell through river ice and into the frigid waters beneath. He was able to get out of the water, but was in so much pain and shock he could only make it into an abandoned sawmill nearby for shelter. By morning, when he was found and rescued, the hypothermia in his legs had turned gangrenous, and the legs had to be amputated. He was given the moniker of Gambi, probably because in his pain he kept yelling the word Gamba, which is Italian for leg. The people of Chipman, New Brunswick, are apparently much less nice than the folks across the bay in Nova Scotia. This is the community that pissed me off <laughs> this story. Because not wanting to deal with the burden, they stuck Gambi on a ship and paid the captain to dump him on the other side of the bay, which is where Mr. Albright eventually found him. This theory does make a lot of sense, but it's highly controversial, um, with some historians calling it an out-and-out fiction. There is some corroborating evidence, though. There are official government documents showing that the person called Gamby was definitely real. Um, The other details are all still up for dispute. However, some witnesses from the time said that they had been in both places and seen both, and that Jerome and Gamby were definitely the same guy. We'll likely never that know. That seems like something they should have spoken up about <laughs> to the people currently housing Jerome, don't you think? Hey, like if maybe. they had actually made that observation? Well, perhaps they did, and it just didn't matter. Because, yeah. I mean, the people in the people in Sandy Cove, it's like, 
okay, what are they going to do with that information? They're not going to send them fucking back because it sounds like a <laughs> horrible place for them. No, I mean, it, there's this big town mystery. I mean, the gossip mill, surely everyone would have known after that. So I don't know. <laughs> we'll likely never know for sure who Jerome was. Um, and we here at Here's a Guy certainly don't have any additional information to speculate on. But there was something else I was curious about. So my big question to the two of you, what was in that envelope? Oh, man. So an envelope that uh, he immediately tore up and brought by you know, two got mysterious very, ladies. Very, yeah. Brought by two mysterious ladies that made him so angry that he tore it up and threw it into the fire. I'm going to say that he finally got his spec script back <laughs> and that it was a very firm no. <laughs> uh, and that the producers of the uh, or the uh people at the studio he was trying to send it to uh, found his pilot highly unsatisfactory. And uh, so he vowed to uh, forsake language for, for the rest of his life after that. I think that it was this beautiful, very elegant, like high quality parchment envelope with this nice uh, red wax seal pressed against it. And when you opened it, a, a folded piece of, uh, paper revealed that you should uh, be sure to drink your Ovaltine. <laughs> what I think, and I, I was a little, I, w I was almost thinking you might, you know, you might have the same guess, Jack John, because mine goes similarly. You know, very nice presentation, you know, got the fancy red seal. You open it up to find none other than a drawing of Dick Butt. I was going to say Dick Butt. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was my second option. The ultimate troll. Especially if they were from nobility. And like, this was his, these are like his sisters he hadn't seen in, in like 50 years. And they came by and fucking just give him a drawing of Dick Butt. Like, here, it left behind. These are your instructions of how to get home. Yeah. It's time. Opens it up and it's fucking Dick Butt. Can you imagine? These are, these are, would that be better or worse than him opening it and a bunch of fake snakes popping out <laughs> and springs? Always the peanut brittle. Or, you know, even funny, even funnier, but more simpler yet. They just make this mysterious presentation. It's just like an envelope full of dog shit or something <laughs> like that. It's uh, it's that scene from uh, The Simpsons Treehouse of Horror where um, the doctor is like holding up a mirror. And he's like, you haven't even seen your own face. And they hold it up and it's like hollow and he just punches them in the face. <laughs> okay, well, good answers both. And so now we move on to our second topic of the evening. Jack John, we turn to you. Who's your guy? This week, I want to talk about carrots. The magical orange vegetable. Uh, and it's surprising amount of health value. And we can't talk about the power of carrots without my guy this week, Basil Brown. I, I'm we're 10 seconds into this topic and I'm already loving it. Everything about a man it, named I'm Basil Brown. What do I know? I know carrots, my friend. It sounds delightful. That's all I need to know. I it's hope old. there's not, I, I really hope there's not going to be some horrible skeleton in his closet. <laughs> we'll see. Oh, it's he, it, it, uh, to, to borrow a line from Alex, this is here's a guy after all. Fuck. <laughs> uh, Basil was born in the mid 1920s in England. Uh, that's right, folks. Uh, I'm back in England this week. Uh, and for all of our sanities, I promise well, Sheila from last week's episode will not make an appearance that I know of. 
The guy's name is Basil. I think it's a given that we're back in England. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But were they name people Basil anywhere else on Earth? But we're in the exact same so. exact same time period. So Sheila technically is in the same vicinity as Basil. They, they could have crossed paths. It's kind of yeah. like when we discussed um like Bob Potter and Richard Lawrence. Yeah. Like they might have crossed paths <laughs> yeah. at some point. Uh, growing up in England during the time of uh, the World Wars has lasting impacts on everyone. The constant fear of bombings, the high stress of citywide blackouts, and the threat of Nazis storming through your building had everyone on edge, to say the least. Margaret Basil was alive during this time frame, and most definitely this shaped the way his brain was wired, uh, but not for the reasons you might think. The British blackouts of World War II started in 1939 and lasted the first half of the 40s. During the same time, the UK ministry began to pass along information to aid the British citizens on how to live their lives uh, the best way they could in the dark. One of those things was uh, a way to see at night, uh, and as it turns out, uh, carrots have fucking superpowers that can lead one to be able to see in the dark. Interesting. Uh, the ministry found this through very complicated sciencey stuff, uh, but the research was concrete, I can assure you this. <laughs> clearly, science is, clearly science is our, our, our strong suit over at Here's a Guy. Yes. Uh, you know, you say complicated science stuff, that's really all the proof I need. Yeah. <laughs> science is like one hair away from magic, and I just trust it implicitly. Uh, but this led to the popularization of carrots, first in the UK, uh, before spreading to other parts of Europe and more so the US. Carrots were the reason that, and this is probably my favorite name um, of the episode, John Cadeyes Cunningham was able to see so well at night. Sounds like an old-timey British wrestler. <laughs> uh, but John Cadeyes had managed to shoot down an ungodly 20 Nazi planes, 19 of which had happened during the night. Praise be unto the carrots on high, and uh, it wasn't shortly after this that the uh, Germans had caught wind uh, that carrots were um, what gave John his powers, and they started to feed their own pilots copious amounts of carrots. This is where the uh, it finally became public knowledge that John was in fact a rabbit. <laughs> uh, this, of course, did absolutely nothing. Uh, as this was yet again another piece of classic World War II propaganda pushed to diverse Nazis' attention uh, and their resources, once again, proving the Nazis are stupid. Um, That's right. See, now, I knew that carrots helping your eyesight wasn't strictly true, mm -hmm. but I did not know that this was the origin point, and I absolutely love it. Now, carrots, I think niacin is supposed to promote, like, healthier eyes, mm -hmm. but... Yeah, yeah the, the effect is yeah. negligible. So, so from the research that I did, the vitamin A that you get from it helps maintain your eyes, but it will not improve your eyes. It's basically kind of just like helping keep the status quo as far as the research that I saw states. Uh, okay. Carrots yeah, we, do not help that, you that see at the, night. Yeah, that was the first... The first reminder in several weeks of our favorite mantra on Here's <laughs> yes. Guy. Everybody, everybody listening at home, say it along with us. One, two, three. The Nazis, Nazis are, are idiots. Stupid. These are yeah. stupid. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, it had you been all a, know it. It had sing been it loud, a, sing it proud. It had been a while since I had done a World War II story where the crux of it is the Nazis are stupid. That's the crux of most of them, it turns <laughs> out. Um, 
this propaganda campaign was instrumental uh, uh, through the pushing of carrots into public means. Sure, the idea that carrots can help you see at night is preposterous with even a small amount of thought, uh, but there is some minor science uh, underneath everything like we kind of alluded to. Uh, yes, carrots are good for at least maintaining eyesight. This is due in part to the carrot's natural source of vitamin A, uh, which is everything we just said, uh, but my notes uh, are catching up now. Vitamin and they're A. Delicious, and they're delicious in a soup. Oh, yes. They are. I, when I make a chicken noodle soup, I have to be really cautious not to add too many carrots. But I'll add enough that it like carrots, slightly discolors the broth. And that's how much I like them. Yeah. Carrots. Yeah. Carrots are one of my favorites, too. I will tell you, maybe my favorite vegetable side dish of all time is glazed baby carrots. Ooh. Mm. Uh, it's classic. I'm a big fan of uh, carrots in a pot roast. Oh, we just yes. had that a couple weeks ago. Oh, fuck Mwah. yeah. Some carrots. <laughs> Some potatoes, some onions, some celery. I mean, oh, so uh, good. And if you're playing Here's a Guy Bingo at home, please mark uh, the guys get distracted by food again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, vitamin A. That's going on our drinking game rules. Honestly, it should. It should. <laughs> vitamin A is recommended for everyone's diet uh, due to this um, uh, health benefit. Uh, but they won't make your eyes better. It'll just maintain what you have. Um, carrots are good for another thing during this time frame, however. At the same time, the British Ministry of Food was pushing for more root vegetables to be eaten in what they were calling the Dig for Victory campaign. Okay. Uh, this campaign was to help curb a few issues for the British people. Mainly, food was becoming rationed for everyone. This meant things like sugar and other sweeteners were scarce at best. In you comes the carrot. You could not get chocolate during World War II to save yep. your fucking life, yep. apparently. Yep. Uh, Sugar, I can't remember the exact measurement, but sugar was rationed by how much your family could get per week, yeah. and it was a minuscule amount. Our grandfather had a story about that. <clears throat> he grew up around yep. that time, and um, there was this this girl at school who apparently had a crush on him, and their class did like a gift exchange thing, and he kind of like he wasn't really interested in her. Like he he thought she was nice, but didn't really like her in that way, and sort of spurned her interest. And he brought home the gift and found out it was a chocolate bar, Ooh. which was like fucking really hard to come by. And he felt so bad. <laughs> oh, no. What a lovely guy. Uh, this campaign was accompanied by a cartoon carrot creatively named Doctor Carrot, alongside his companion, equally um, uh, the name was hard worked uh, Potato Pete. Potato Pete. Who would win in a fight, Captain <laughs> Carrot or Yukon Cornelius? <laughs> I don't want my, first of all, I don't want my doctor to be named Dr. Oh, no. Carrot, but I certainly don't want him to have a sidekick named Potato Pete. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, Potato Pete will be taking your blood now. Sorry, I made a misstep there. Captain Cornelius. Yukon Cornelius is the character from the stop motion animation Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I'm pretty, I got my, my childhood yes. characters mixed up. The one that uh, the one that taught us all that bumbles bounce. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Wanted to issue a clarification on that. Uh, but the two vegetables would be pushed as foods people could substitute into their diets uh, to fulfill their needs. Uh, this began to push recipes like carrot pudding, carrot cake, and even carrot marmalade uh, for the people. Hmm. Don't know about that. Yeah, like carrot, carrot cake pudding is pretty dicey yeah unless it's well, just like a pudding equivalent of a carrot cake well i imagine it's yeah. more of like the british version of pudding mm. which is slightly different yeah. than our version pudding. of anything is also that yeah carrot cake i love yeah yeah uh but as far as i can tell this is where like a lot of those like dishes become like heavily pushed and more prevalent than like kind of like passed on 
Uh, so your your grandmother's carrot cake recipe might be from World War II. Uh, but this ramped up uh, carrot and other vegetation production, and by 1942, the Ministry of Food was boasting an incredible 100,000-ton-pound surplus of carrots. Damn. Uh, a fuckload of carrot, uh, medic- or, uh, scientifically speaking. What does one do, <laughs> I wonder, with so many carrots? So, it's easy to see why carrots might become impressionable uh, on a young person in the UK during this time. In comes Basil Brown. Carrots become impressionable on a young person. I am dying to know where this is going. (laughs) Basil most certainly had the idea of carrots providing a greater life uh, rooted into his brain. But something that ingrained into your brain can cause problems. Was once a healthy idea in your head can quickly turn rotten with hyperfixation and addiction. And here... Uh, this is where Here's a Guy uh, truly comes into play, uh, and you can probably see where this is going to head. Oh. The turn was gradual, but Basil begins to obsess over Kareth. Luckily please, for... Please don't obsess over root vegetables. If you're out there listening, that's just... And he yeah. is, even though he's a teenager, he's probably telling the truth, because I can't, I can't think of a way that... that well, I take that back. I was about to think of I can't say I can't think of a way that he could secretly be masturbating with them, but I actually can. So <laughs> never mind. Yeah. Uh, luckily for us, or unlucky if you find this kind of psychosis entertaining, the real meat of this vegetable mania took place in the seventies. Uh, so there isn't really an online footprint for what Basil was truly doing or thinking. Um, if this had happened in modern days, his Twitter would be amazing. Oh yeah. Generally, okay. I'm glad there was no internet in the 70s, because things would be a, a nasty yeah. back then. The 70s were a nasty enough decade without the internet. Yeah. They really were. The year is 1974. Uh, Basil is now in his late 40s, and he's planning to live a long and full life. The key to this, As of course, is carrots. Oh, yeah. Of course. At this point in his life, Basil is ingesting an obscene amount of carrots for every meal, every day. I love when the when the key to longevity is the thing that I'm hopelessly addicted to. Anyway, <laughs> look, I'm yeah, just telling Keith you, guys. Richards discovers that the uh, key to longevity is cocaine. Look, guys, damn, the, life is easy. Actually, the, the key to living a long life is six beers a day, and that's what I've been telling myself. And I'm still alive currently. That's right, Jack John. Uh, but he's uh, he's doing carrot smoothies, carrots at lunch, carrots at dinner. Any way Basil can get a carrot into his body, he's doing it. If you know what I mean. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) The next line in my script. Pause for carrot in the ass joke. (laughs) There you go. Like, (laughs) but like in all seriousness, (laughs) I mean, the odds are pretty high that he did try that at some point. Right. I mean, I mean. My source didn't say that, but my source wouldn't even if he did. Yeah. I mean, whether anyone (laughs) knew about it or not, just. (laughs) You know, the the odds are pretty good, I think. Yeah. Uh, It should also be noted at this point, from as far as I can tell, Basil is just a guy. Um, Records show that he had no formal schooling or any expert training in carrot science. Uh, An article I used referred to him as a scientist, but it's hard to tell if this was an actual profession or something said uh, in jest as a uh, look at this scientist. 
<laughs> so he's a he's a just a carrot enthusiast is what we're dealing with here. Yes, as far as I can tell. Uh, and this was long before the days of being an Instagram scientist, someone to push bizarre foods and tricks to gain a healthy lifestyle. And we were still even several decades away from Gwyneth Paltrow's magic vagina eggs. Yep. He, he got imagine if those two got together. <laughs> he would in theory, he could be having a heyday right now, but like the weird carnivore diet, like fash guys are, are kind of the ones having the moment. <laughs> Like, I saw yeah. one of them going on a tirade the other day on Twitter about how gross, objectively speaking, he says vegetables are. And, of course, he was, like, talking shit about, like, oh, someone says their favorite food is, like, oh, your favorite food is a turnip or a rutabaga. <laughs> like, yeah, you're picking the bottom of the barrel. You have not addressed the carrot yeah. yet, my friend. We yeah. all know the carrot's delicious. Yeah. Yes, we. Yes, rutabagas <laughs> suck. We know this. But, yeah. like, carrots are amazing. Uh from everything I've seen, my best guess for this obsession with carrots has to lie in those early days of carrot propaganda. Nothing else draws to any other conclusion for me. Um, I I don't think he had any formal training on his opinions and beliefs. I think it was just brainwashed into him. <laughs> I guess as far as like wartime propaganda goes, there are worse things to internalize. <laughs> I was going to say, at least you the, rest the, the right sides propaganda. <laughs> so. Basil continues to ingest carrots daily. And this, as you could imagine, uh, turns into addiction. In today's terms, Basil is suffering, suffering from an extreme case of orthorexia nervosa, or simply an obsession with eating healthy foods to the point of restricting your own life around them. The result of which can result in malnutrition in other areas and poorer quality of life. In an ironic twist, his obsession with carrots begins to blind him from the real dangers he's doing to his body. <laughs> While on his copious carrot cleanse, Basil's skin begins to turn yellow a, a yellow orangish color. Mm -hmm. Yep. Who is he? Donald Trump? <laughs> That's right, baby. We're back. <laughs> Hashtag <laughs> resist. <laughs> That's right. He got indicted. We can all be big, dumb resistance libs now. It's it's allowed. We're we're allowed. I disagree, but weeks. okay. I'm I'm finally glad that at this point in the podcast run, we can finally uh, show our true feelings for for former President Donald Trump. <laughs> We've been very on the fence about him up until now. Yeah. Uh, at this point, Basil's eyes are also beginning to turn a slight yellow color. While Basil doesn't necessarily feel bad, he is showing unnatural hues, and with some prodding from his wife, he finally goes to the doctor. See, now normally what this means is your liver is shutting down. Able that thought. Oh boy. The doctor, like any sane medical professional, tells Basil to cut the shit and to stop eating so many goddamn carrots. <laughs> but again, Basil says that he feels great on his own, and so why should he stop? Other than some slight discolor uh, of his skin, but that's okay. That's merely just a side effect of the greater good he's doing to his body. And besides, these carrots are prolonging his life. If anything, this causes Basil to ramp up his carrot intake. How? Uh, he's already eating almost nothing but carrots. Basil goes back home and begins to go on what I can only describe as a carrot bender. Oh, God. 
over the next... Just stumbling into the grocery store at three in the morning, coming out with two sacks of carrots. These will get me through to the morning. Over the next ten days, Basil would consume a gallon of carrot juice a day. Oh, so he's doing it in liquid form now, too. He's any way he can get it in. In addition to this, Basil felt that his vitamin A intake wasn't sufficient enough, and he started to take supplements to aid this clear deficiency. Jesus. Now, the unit of measurement is questionable, as I'm not sure if they were listing this in milligrams or the exact metric, but per my source, that is the main source for this, Basil ingested, and I quote, a total volume of 70 million units of vitamin A. Okay, so units is um, typically there's a set number of milligrams that are in a unit. So that's not that many milligrams. That's that many like units of milligrams. Yeah, Yeah, that's fucking ridiculous. Uh, And again, uh, just to finally state it, my primary source for this was a New York Times article from 1974. Uh, But everything that I saw said the exact terms 70 million units. God. Um, this, of course, killed Basil Brown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just like outright, he just fucking died. <laughs> uh, what is interesting about this case, though, is the effects that this had on his body. Of course, overconsumption of anything at these kind of levels can be lethal. We can look to the famous ill-fated woman who drowned herself by consuming near two gallons of water over a brief period of time in the Hold Your Wii for a Nintendo Wii contest. Uh, Go back to episode, what was that, like 15, I think? For the... the Our first two-man pod. Yeah, episode 15, Jigsaw Radio, yeah. Uh, The self-proclaimed carrot scientist went down to the hard science of life. The only real bit of science in this being what happened to to Basil's liver. As it turns out, the liver is the prime organ for handling vitamin A and its excess in the body. That excess is stored in the liver, and when the liver can't handle that load, the cells in the liver scar over. The scarring then blocks the flow of blood to the liver and slows the ability to process all the things flowing through it, such as nutrients, hormones, or in Basil's case, straight up toxins. Exactly what happens when you drink too much alcohol. Cirrhosis of the liver. Yes. Uh, The exceedingly high amounts of vitamin A become toxic to the body. That scarring of the tissue is what leads to cirrhosis. Uh, something that would commonly be associated with excessive alcohol and drug consumption. And per the coroner's report on Basil's body, the damage he had done was so severe that his liver was scarred in such a way that it mirrored alcoholism exactly, making it indistinguishable from an alcoholic's liver. This, of course, led to the yellowing of Basil's entire body. Again, clear signs that his liver was failing. So... I understand why the doctor didn't catch that immediately, because there are stories about the niacin in carrots adding that yellow color to your skin when you eat that much. So, yeah, the doctor probably just thought, yeah, this is just the carrots making you yellow because that's what they do. So that's my guy this week, Basil Brown, the man who died due to propaganda health craze or died to a propaganda health craze, which leads me to my big question for you. Uh, what health food do you hate? Um, you know, for me, it's cottage cheese. It is the most disgusting thing mm. in the world. 
Yeah, I, I cannot fucking abide it. And I know it's good for you, and I know it's dairy, so I should like it. I just, there's something about it I just cannot handle. I'll agree with you there. It's I think it's fucking disgusting. It's way too liquidy and runny, and even, like, if yeah. you get, like, the quote-unquote good kind, it's still just fucking gross. Yeah. You know what I learned recently is that um, uh, curds and whey, that's what that is. That's cottage cheese, cheese yeah. Mm-hmm. Gross. Um, for me, and like the, the hard thing is, I don't even know what the actual name for this is and nobody else seems to either, but you know, where you've seen people have like one of those like green juice drinks. Yeah. Yeah. The problem is like one, I'm just based on the type of people I usually see consuming them. I'm not convinced that it's actually true that it's that healthy for you. Oh no. Um, two, like. If you're doing it for like a cleanse, like I know that's going to come out looking the exact same as it goes <laughs> yeah. in. And I, I can't handle thinking about that. Yeah. You know, I, I think the green stuff, I think that's wheatgrass is what that is. That was yeah. a big smoothie thing for a while is wheatgrass juice. Yeah. I like Laura and I. It apparently tasted like licking a John Deere lawnmower. Like, so Laura and I would make our smoothies, especially a lot when she was pregnant, as to like to get like nutrients as like an easy, ingestible way. And I have some of like the green superfood powder, uh, but I use it very sparingly because too much of it and it tastes like ass. And you need to find like the right consistency where it's not gritty when you're drinking it. That's that's right. the key. Really, it, anything talking about superfood in general? Because here's a fun fact that you all out there might not know: superfood, not an actual scientific designation. <laughs> no. It was created by marketing firms. Yes. So most of the foods considered superfoods are healthy. It's true. Yeah. Like, what I see, like fucking like salmon and, and nuts, blueberries, grapefruit. Yeah, I love. I think pomegranates, maybe. Yeah, yeah. but like superfood, not a real concept. <laughs> so just a, a fun one for you out there. Also, I didn't include because this like health benefits. I don't know that people really fool themselves on this, but like the all natural peanut butter that you have to stir. Oh biggest yeah. fucking scam. I have I have so <laughs> many thoughts on that. Like, oh well, it's not like. Regular peanut butter, it has so much sugar in it. No shit, that's what makes it taste so good. I'm eating fucking yeah. peanut butter. Like if I wanna if I wanna eat peanuts, I'll eat peanuts, yeah. you know? I'm not yeah. fooling myself into yeah. thinking this is healthy for me. I know it's terrible. It's peanut butter. You're you know? telling me peanut butter's not that bad for you. I mean yeah. it's got a lot of sugar and a fair amount of fat, but it's got a shitload of protein and yeah. zero carbs. Yeah. So wait, so so you're telling me use sparingly, it can be very good for you. You're telling me the food that has the word butter in it is not the perfect food? <laughs> I mean, PB and J, like, yeah, there are good aspects yeah. to this, but it's yeah. full of sugar. I know this. Yeah. You know? Um, and like, you know, I've seen people put forward the argument like, well, you know, regular peanut butter uses palm oil and like, you know, the, the palm oil is like horrible for the earth to harvest. I'm like, OK, true, but shut up. Because <laughs> yeah. like that is yeah. you're, that's that's one of those hard things. Like on one hand, you are right. <laughs> on the other hand, like. That's opening a real Pandora's box yeah. here that I don't know. Like, but anyway, that, that's bad. But like, let's talk tackle like the hundred other things that are worse in front of right, it, and right. then we can get to peanut yeah, butter. Let's, let's maybe uh, ease up on the fossil fuels a little bit before we start uh, eating gross peanut butter to try and uh, <laughs> save the planet. And Rip. that's that's and that's how it is here on this bitch of an earth. <laughs> mm-hmm. Great answers, both of you. A uh, wonderful ball of shit. Uh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go at arugula. Um, it's bitter. 
and I don't think it's the best leafy green. It's actually kind of shit. Uh, just eat kale or spinach. Fuck off arugula. Yeah, I, I'm okay with a little bit of arugula in a salad, but some people definitely overdo it. I'll, I'll push back on you slightly, because I, I'm kind of with you on a salad. It's not the best salad green. But as a topping for a sandwich, okay. arugula is really nice. Um, I, I can see that very well I guess it would there. depend on what kind of sandwich. At, at that point, yeah. though, you're just masking it with the sandwich. Well, maybe. But if it's a sandwich that is has like something salty, like maybe some bacon or some yeah. turkey and like kind of a, a little bit more mellow cheese, um, you know, maybe with some like, you know, God damn, I'm thinking about food again. Stop. <laughs> that's, that's, an, um, that's another drink. I, I brought this on to us and I, I will apologize greatly. Well, thank you, Jack John. Uh, that was a good topic. And that means we only have one left. So, Cody, we turn to you. Who is your guy this week? Well, this is actually a gal. Uh, tonight we have another topic where the guy or gal in question is actually a very small part of a much larger story. This week we'll be talking about Virginia Dare, the first English child born in the American colonies, and more broadly, the story of the Roanoke colony, which you probably are somewhat familiar with. I'm going to assume that you are somewhat familiar with it anyway. Yeah, but, I think that's, that's the way to describe most people are somewhat familiar. Um, but Obviously, there's a lot more backstory to get into that I that people, including me, don't know about. So I'm interested to hear. There is much, much more to this story than most Americans understand, both in terms of the actual facts and the legacy and the aftermath. So Virginia's mother, Eleanor, was fortunate enough to be the daughter of John White. John White had first been sent to the New World and Roanoke in particular in 1585, and he at this point served as the artist and cartographer for the colonists who attempted to start a colony on, again, Roanoke Island, which was off the coast of what is now North Carolina. This first attempt was unsuccessful, but White and the Crown weren't ready to give up on the colony just yet. A second attempt was made in 1587, and this time, John White was to serve as the governor of the colony. Virginia's father, Ananias Dare, was another government official and White's right-hand man. By the way, there are going to be some names that are very hard to pronounce in this segment, so do the, you know, bear with me, I will do the best I can. But before we get into Virginia's life and legacy, we first need to talk about the Roanoke colony itself. I'm sure that everyone listening has heard of the disappearing colony in Roanoke. I remember being taught in school and also some stuff through pop culture about the entire settlement full of people that disappeared without a trace. Everything was left where it had been, belongings, even food, sitting there as though waiting for someone to come back to it. And the only clue to what may have happened was a strange word, Croatoan, carved into a nearby fence post. One of the strangest occurrences in the history of America, and a mystery that would probably never be solved. That's the story that everybody knows. But unless you're bothered to research it yourself, you probably have a fuzzy at best picture of the facts and details. First of all, the man who was really behind the colony was legendary explorer Sir Walter Raleigh. Sir Walter Raleigh, while himself a little too high profile for us to cover on the show was absolutely a guy. 100%. See, Raleigh thought for sure that this new world would make him rich and powerful, even more so than he already was. 
That was his reasoning for going back to Roanoke after the failure of this first colony. The first attempt at colonizing Roanoke was, well, I guess disaster is the word I'm looking for. I mean, I can't think of a better way to put it. Um, mostly because of trouble with the natives. So there were a few different tribes in the area, all with various different attitudes to the white settlers. Ralph Lane, the governor of this first attempted colony, did not exactly have a uh, deft touch with the locals. Nor especially did John Grenville, the naval captain who was in charge of the expedition. When the settlers first arrived and uh, spent some time among the natives in one of their villages, everything went okay. Until the expedition moved on, and it was noticed then that a mildly expensive silver cup had gone missing. John Grenville and his men returned to the village to demand the cup's return. When the natives either couldn't or wouldn't produce the cup, Grenville, purporting to avoid England appearing weak, burned the village to the ground. That's a oh. reasonable response, I think. We have a small suspicion that you might have stolen this cup, so we're going to burn <laughs> everything you have to ashes. Yeah, fair amounts. He had a bad week. Let's yeah. let it go. Look, he set one Still building colonists... on fire. He's, it's not his fault that there was oil and grease everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's not like everything's made of wood or anything. <laughs> Still, they managed to establish a decent relationship with the Sakotan tribe on Roanoke, and the Sakotan agreed to help the colonists learn to grow food and even to help feed them until they became self-sufficient. The chief who had made this arrangement was named, let's see, Grangana Mayo. Had to make sure I was getting that right. He died in 1856, however. And the colonists quickly found themselves in a very tenuous situation. See, the rest of the tribal leadership was a lot less tolerant of these assholes who have just moved in here. And this was exacerbated by the colonists relying heavily on them for food. Thing is, these colonists were mostly there hoping to find gold or silver. And as, as a result, most, most of them did not know dick about farming. So they were very bad at, at producing their own food. Uh, the Sakotans continued to feed the colonists while Granganamea was still alive, but after, afterwards it was quickly decided that, no, you can either figure it out yourself or alternatively get the fuck off our land. There's option number two. Hey, uh, do you know uh, where I can Lane get some food? Lane and Grenville. Go ahead. go ahead, Jack. I'll say, uh, hey, do you know where I can go uh, get some food? Yeah, it's back where the fuck you came from. <laughs> uh, Lane and Grenville eventually were forced to give up, and the colonists went home, leaving a small party behind to maintain Raleigh's claim on the land. Which seems extremely dangerous, but, you know. Uh... That is a, a topic we will revisit later, is Sir Walter Raleigh's incredible greed. Just truly one of the greediest men who has ever existed. Um, so when the second expedition set out, they knew that they wouldn't be safe on Roanoke Island for long. Uh, Lane and Grenville had done enough damage to relations with the Sakotan tribe that if the, the English showed up again, they'd probably just kill them all. 
Um, but they did go there first to salvage what they could from the original colony and also figure out where to go from there and what the plan was. While they were there, they did manage to make friends with the Croatan tribe. Or sorry, Croatan, I believe is how you pronounce it. The uh, tribe's chief, Manteo, had bad news. A coalition of mainland tribes were quite hostile to colonists and would likely threaten the colony's future in the area. This message was driven home when a colonist was killed by natives when he was out foraging for crabs. Oof. These first months were pretty tense, but there were some happy moments, too. Most notably, in early August 1587, Virginia Dare was born. She was named Virginia because at that time, all of this area on that coast where the English were trying to settle was known as Virginia. They made her kind of the poster child for the New World and all of their hopes for the bright, prosperous future that they would surely enjoy once they'd finished murdering the natives and displacing them from their land. Still, between dwindling supplies and the threat of the Sakotans, the colonists decided to send John White back to England to ask the Queen for help and more supplies. White didn't really want to leave because he knew that they were in a tough enough spot anyway, and if I leave, these people are just on their own out here. <clears throat> but eventually right. the colonists persuaded him that this had to be done. And, you know, it's not like doing another cross-Atlantic trip is any safer either, let's be realistic. No. <laughs> we've all, we all know, we've said on this podcast a million times what this time period was like. <laughs> And Alex, I'm very glad you brought that up, because at this point, we must remember that England was at war with Spain, oh, which right. made the waters even more difficult. <laughs> yeah. And at that point, most of the fighting was being done via ships. It was all naval stuff. White, however, did get back to England. When he did, he was immediately told that, hey, buddy, your ships, they've been drafted. Uh, we need every ship we can get to help fight this war. So uh, you ain't going anywhere or bringing anybody anything for a while. In 1588, he tried once again to go back. His party made it a little ways before again running into trouble with the Spanish and also pirates. So mm. they had to turn back eventually. Ultimately, John White would be stuck in England for three years. He finally managed to get passage in 1590. John White and his party made landfall on August 18th, his granddaughter Virginia's third birthday. When they arrived, however, as we've talked about earlier, they found the colonists gone. Now, this is the part of the story everybody's heard. But at the same time, it isn't. If you remember the way that I described the situation when they uh, returned to Roanoke earlier. That's what we've all been taught. While the colonists were gone, what John White actually found was that the buildings had been dismantled and everything that could be carried was gone. And while the word Croatoan was carved into a signpost, the meaning of this mysterious word was not actually a mystery at all. Croatoan was the name of the island right next to Roanoke. <laughs> I see. And in fact, the colonists had told White that if they had to leave and relocate, they would leave him something to tell him where they went. In short, 
This fascinating legend that every American has heard growing up is actually a massive nothing burger of a story. Yeah, that does. Most of what you know is bullshit. And what is true is told completely out of context and without crucial background information. That does sound like everything I've learned about Native Americans growing up is that you kind of know what it is, but it's also complete bullshit what you've been taught. I was going to say, do you do you think that maybe the <laughs> chance that this story is one that can be wielded by ignorant people to make the 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 Native Americans look like a bunch of violent <laughs> savages? Do you think maybe that's why people have lied about this for so long? We'll get there. Ah, <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, yes, that in short answer. Yes, that is one of the reasons I think this story has hung around. There are a few others, but we'll get into those in a minute. Um, so White tried to get across the sound to Roanoke, but the passage was too dangerous. That's another thing is that the channel of water in between those two islands was actually very difficult and dangerous to navigate, especially under certain conditions. John White never would find his colonists. Maybe they made it to Croatoan. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they died on the way over. And neither White would never find out what happened to his colonists, and neither did anyone else for sure. It's possible that they were assimilated into the Croatoan natives on the uh, or the Croatian natives on Croatoan, or that they were killed by some native tribe or the other. But actually, probably the most fascinating part of this story is that this might not have remained a mystery if not for our old friend Sir Walter Raleigh and his unquenchable greed. Ah, I was wondering when we were coming back. See, Raleigh himself told White and the Queen that he would personally investigate this. But by all accounts, he didn't try very hard. <laughs> he made a few voyages over there, but as he himself later admitted, this was mostly a pretext for his continuing search for El Dorado, the lost city of gold. Yeah. See, Raleigh didn't really want to find out what happened here, because his claim on the colony would be voided if it turned out the settlers had been killed. <laughs> so instead of finding out what really happened, Raleigh decided it would be best if this just remained a mystery. After all, if nobody ever found out what happened to the colonists, no one could prove they were dead. I guess? And his claim would remain intact. Now, I know that we have discussed this at length on the show, but once again, this is an example of the laughable failure that is the American educational system. <laughs> this reminds me a lot of our Mrs. O'Leary segment, The Great Chicago Fire, a while back, because again, I remember learning about this in school. And that sensationalized version where it's a huge mystery is the one that I heard just like everybody else. Yeah. In part, that this uh, part of the reason this narrative has survived is because of our American philosophy that a good story is better than the truth any day, and also is yet another story that whitewashes early American settlers and makes them either look like heroes or victims instead of imperialist thieves who stole land and resources. And of course, as Alex pointed out, very easy to make the uh, Native Americans look like a bunch of violent, uh, bloodthirsty savages. As for Virginia Dare herself, her name and image have been corporatized and licensed on products from cola to vanilla. What about vanilla Now, cola? at this point, 
Also, yes. At this point, you might have noticed that we have spent a tiny, tiny fraction of this story talking about Virginia Dare. And that is another point that I wanted to make. Because Virginia Dare lived for, at absolute most, three years that we are sure of. Her role to play in this story is very, very small. But still, her name and what it has come to stand for is propped up for use in selling products and sensationalist movies, books, etc., etc., about the Roanoke Colony in media and pop culture. The academic community, by the way, they treat this story with serious disdain. They don't like that it's become so popular and widely taught because they know what I've told all of you here tonight. They know that the real story isn't all that interesting. You don't learn much from it. There's not a whole lot of academic value there. But still it persists. In conclusion, the reason that Roanoke is still treated as this big mystery despite knowing all of the things that we've talked about here tonight, is very simple. Mystery Cells. So that's the story of Virginia Dare and Roanoke Colony, the mystery that wasn't a mystery. So, for my big question for you two here tonight, I'm going to do kind of an open floor thing. I'm just going to throw the floor open to you guys. You can tell me as many as you want. Can you guys think of anything else that you learned in history as history growing up that you later found out was wrong, either in terms of the facts or the context? Hard to even know where to begin. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm trying to think, like, by the time we came around, was George Washington and the cherry tree? Like, I think most people knew about that one. Yeah. But one of the early ones for me, Paul Revere's Midnight Ride, which that one's kind of a shame. Yeah. Like, what Paul Revere did was pretty impressive but like it just wasn't that yeah um yeah i i just had a recent one um sarah and i we went to the botanical gardens here in st louis and they have um a little section that's um the george washington carver memorial garden and george washington carver a brilliant scientist and inventor and created a ton of shit we're taught that he invented peanut butter when he actually did not um but like you know it's hard to poke many holes in that because, like, it, it at least gets gives him some kind of credit that he deserves. That's true. Um, those are those are a couple that that stick out yeah. to me just as common urban yeah. myths in America. The the very obvious one that immediately jumps to me is just everything uh, regarding Christopher Columbus yes. and just the, yeah. the giant falsehood that that was. Uh, and by extension, I'm pretty sure a lot of Lewis and Clark is complete bullshit that's still taught. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, very yeah. sensationalized versions of that. Basically, any kind of like American exploration I've learned is probably bullshit being taught at like a school level. I mean, along those same lines, we've talked about this before, but um, communist governments, any discussion of the Soviet Union or Cuba um is extremely one-sided and there's a lot of propaganda in there i mean that's not to say that the soviet union and cuba under castro particularly that's not to say that everything they did was good yeah but i mean they they basically what we're taught is that communism the way it's described in schools is basically what fascism is like it's it's 
basically this pure evil system of government where the government has complete and total control over everything that you do and everything that you're uh, you know exposed to um and that's just not quite the way it works um like i said you know stalin in particular did some very bad things uh ditto for mao Zedong. but the way we learn about it in public schools at least i'm once we get to college you start learning some of the actual shit that happened but the way that's taught is very you know heavy-handed we're gonna slant this as much as we can get away with another one i'll think of kind of since we're talking more along like, you know, the lines of social movements and things like that. And, you know, the sort of stuff you learn when you start reading like Howard Zinn, um, you know, a, there's a lot of whitewashing of the civil rights movement, oh, yeah. um, mm -hmm. that they basically get held up now, you know, by, by white people as an example of like, well, you know, here, here's an example, like they enacted change. This is what happens when, when black people behave themselves and go about things the right way. When in reality, the civil rights movement was a really impressively intricate strategy to, you know, attack the laws of Jim Crow, um, part of which was, and then this, like, it's amazing that Rosa Parks gets taught, but like that they don't teach the bigger message, which is that the bigger point there was that when a law is this clearly unjust, like Jim Crow laws were, it's actually a point of pride to break the law. Um, and so yeah. lawlessness became, you know, wielded for good. Um, and, you know, there was violence. There was, you know, upheaval. There was a lot of the same that was true in, with women getting the right to vote. I mean, there were riots that happened, and rightfully so. Um, rather, you know, peaceful protest and non-peaceful protest kind of go hand in hand in that way. But, you know, they, they want you to believe that if you just gather enough people and, you know, go on one singular march that'll convince people. And that was a big part of it, but that it, it took a lot more than that. So um, that's that's one that even today is is still a pretty pernicious lie that we're told. Yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'll throw in one more. It's not necessarily a lie. It's just a completely glossing over that it exists. Uh, like when you're going through like your World War Two, like section in like high school, weird, like all the human rights violations that happened in Europe. And we just gloss over everything we did to Japanese Americans on the West Coast. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. We just completely <laughs> gloss over we those. We did talk about internment camps in high school. I was kind of surprised. Yeah, we were, we were taught some... Our Illinois public school history textbooks were not as bad as, as you might think. Because I remember we learned about Manifest Destiny, too. <laughs> Granted, we didn't really stop and do a ton of reflection on how it was like, one of the most evil concepts our country's concocted. And, think and about we were taught about Manifest Destiny, but we weren't taught that it was bad. It was the thing. <laughs> we, we we're kind of just presented it. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah that, that's and we were taught about like the Trail of Tears and stuff like that. But, yeah. Um, yeah, just re go read some kiddos out there. <laughs> if you haven't already, go read like some Howard Zinn and, you know, go learn about the stuff that really happened and, <laughs> and um, it's going to be a very enriching experience. For I, you, I you know, I'm, this is the most college freshman thing I've ever said, but I really don't think that you can claim to have a good grasp on American history unless you have read a people's history of the United States. You know, I, I think you need that viewpoint in order to actually understand it. If you want to know how the criminal justice system actually works, read the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander and 
you know, just top it off, go read some old Angela Davis stuff. You'll learn how this mm-hmm. shit actually works and what it's actually for. Um, but anyway, we're back on the soapbox, yeah. which is fine. And, and when you need a palate cleanser, read Super Fudge. Yeah. <laughs> Or listen also, to yes. uh, or listen to your trusty neighborhood podcast like this one right here. <laughs> yeah, because we don't ever talk about this stuff. <laughs> Only sometimes. Um, other times we talk about guys eating way too many carrots and dying. <laughs> so, there you go. Or shoving a whalebone up his uh, own cock yeah. and then dying. Yeah, yeah. that was our version of talking about the founding fathers. <laughs> That's true. All right. All right. Well, unless anybody has any has any more, I'm going to go ahead and say uh, good answers and close the floor. But yeah, those are all important things to to talk about, I think. And if you know any more that that you would like to share with us, uh, send it our way at here's a mailbox at gmail dot com. Um, so on that note, uh, great show, everybody. Let's wrap things up. Uh, let's go around the horn and hawk our shit. Cody, where can the people find you? Uh, you can find me here on Here's a Guy every week on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. I am at Son of Gravy for 2069, and you can find me announcing your local donkey basketball game. <laughs> Jack John, where can the people find you? Uh, people can find me on Twitter at Papa underscore Jack John. Find me on Twitch at uh, twitch.tv slash Papa Jack John. I'm working on some projects. Uh, at me on Twitter and yell at me that I should do my projects because uh, odds are I'd say that I'm going to do them and then I don't because uh, because that's my brain. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully find me more places. But those are the two main ones. And here. You can find me on Twitter at Turpin for Prez. That's Turpin, the number four P-R-E-Z. Follow the podcast account as well. It's at Here's a Guy Pod. Uh, that's where the last two rounds of March Hagness will be taking place. Uh, follow us for other fun stuff as well. Um, and as I mentioned a few minutes ago, we have a mailbox. Here's a mailbox at gmail.com. Send us whatever you like. We like it enough. We'll read it on the show. Um, all right. So uh, thanks, everybody, for your contributions. Um, and thank you all for joining us. Uh, Cody, by any chance, do you have a tagline for this show? I'm glad you asked. I do. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you all for being here. Hope to have you back again with us next week. Cody, hit us with that tagline, please. Folks. Carrots only make you immortal if you're Bugs Bunny. (laughs) Bye, daddies.